thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Live from the BBC, The Naked Scientists. Hello, good evening everyone. You're listening to The Naked Scientists on the BBC in the Eastern Counties with me, Dr Kat, Dr Sarah. Hello. And the ever beautiful and wonderful Mandy Morton working the desks for us. Good evening. Because we have parasitised Chris's show to talk about parasites. Parasites are kind of bugs and stuff and ugh, that live on us and in us and around us. We're going to be talking to Professor David Pritchard from Nottingham University about his work. Good evening, David. Uh, good evening. So what are you going to be talking to us about? I'm going to be telling you how we're trying to exploit parasites to discover new medicines for the treatment of diseases such as asthma and Crohn's. Excellent. So we're going to be hearing about that later. If you've got any questions for David about parasites, about his research, and also about allergies, because Dr Sarah here is a GP who can talk all about allergies, get phoning in with your questions for David and for Sarah. Also, coming up later, we're going to be talking to Professor Elizabeth Bernays at the University of Arizona, who's been looking at what caterpillars like to eat and what happens when they get parasitised as well. So that'll be coming up. And also, we've got Kitchen Science, which is an explosive experiment that you really shouldn't try at home. So uh, Dave and Derek will be coming up with that later. So what else have we got on the show, Sarah? Well, we've also got our usual competition, cats. That's fact or fiction. So ring in on 08459252000 and you can win a great Encyclopedia Britannica on DVD, Woo! which is a fantastic <laughs> prize. It looks cool. Um, and we've also got some interesting questions coming in. Megan in Cambridge has asked us why the sea's salty, so that one coming up. And also Sally and Luton has phoned in to ask us why we fart and produce those noxious gases. I'd love to know. I'm dying for the answer on that particular one. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. So we got some science news here for you, and this is an intriguing one here, that apparently people are more willing to eat stale food if it's served to them in a big bucket. Now, researchers in America have done this, um, studying popcorn, and they found that if they served people in the cinema popcorn in big buckets, they ate over 30% more than people given stale popcorn in a normal-sized bucket. Um, and they did test normal popcorn as well, tasty popcorn, and they found that people eating out of big buckets ate even more so it's, uh, if you give someone food in a really big serving, then they'll eat it, even if it's crap. Mm. <laughs> I think that, that counts for a KFC mega chicken bucket. <laughs> exactly. Oh. And uh, what the researchers think this means is that um, people think that that's an assumption, that that's a normal-sized portion, so you're more willing to, to eat it all. And, um, and also people discount the calorie content of food if they don't really like it. So they didn't think that the stale popcorn had that many calories in. <laughs> and also they didn't think that they were really being influenced by this either. So it just goes to show popcorn, it's insidious. Hmm. Depends on whether it's got caramel sauce on, doesn't it? With how many calories it's got in it, I should think. I'm <laughs> wondering if it depends on the film you're watching, uh, yeah. the calorie count. <laughs> uh, yeah, stay up. people are willing to eat anything if it's served in a big bucket. 
Mm. Sarah, what have you got? Well, I've been a junior doctor on the wards late at night and sometimes it's really hard to get blood out of veins and I'm sure the nurses and doctors in the area can um, uh, sympathise with me on that one. But in the US, a firm called Lumitex have developed an, a brilliant vampire system. It's a vein viewer system using an infrared camera and it beams the infrared beam onto the skin and can map out um, where the veins are running and it does you a little green map-like pathway and so you can work out where to jab your patient to get the blood and so pe- more painless for patients and better for doctors and nurses that sounds great um, and they also think it can be used in cosmetic surgery when you're having thread veins removed because you can look out for the le- uh, the feeder vessels more easily and track them down because they're often well hidden underneath the skin and so you're less likely to get a recurrence of your thread veins oh, I, what i want cool. to know is what's what's the easiest place to inject someone because you always see people sticking um, needles in people's hands. The best place is the sort of front of the elbow area because that's where you tend to have a big vein. Um, and also, often if you're putting a drip in, the hand's a good place because it's nice and flat, whereas at your elbow you tend to bend it a lot. But if you're just taking blood, the, the bit in front of the elbow is the best place. Yes, the elbow. What about yeah. so what people weigh? I mean, does it depend on whether, whether we are overweight or underweight as to whether you can get to the veins easier or not? Yeah, definitely it's a lot harder in larger ladies and, and men to find So this veins will help that? Because they're well buried in the fat, in yeah. the, the fat layer of the skin. Mm. <laughs> so any vampires... We've got worse to come on the programme. <laughs> exactly. Any vampires out there listening, you may, may be interested in that infrared camera. And uh, another piece of news from the world of science and technology is that researchers in America have shown that meditation actually increases your brain size. It actually makes you grow grey matter. And uh, researchers at Yale, Harvard and Massachusetts all working together showed that um, people who meditate, and these, these are people who've been trained in, in Buddhist meditation, but they're not monks, they just uh, meditate for about half an hour, 40 minutes every day. And, uh, and they found by looking at their brains with scanning that they actually have increased thickness in a certain part of their brain that's associated with uh, the sensory and the things they hear and see, and also to do with their heart rate and breathing. And uh, they also think that if you meditate regularly, this can slow down age-related thinning in your brain. So as you get older, your brain gradually deteriorates. So maybe if you meditate, you could uh, help to prevent that. So if you're hearing some long silences on the Naked Science this evening, we're meditating. Growing our brains, yep. So um, they think that yoga, meditation, that kind of thing, would all have a really positive benefit. So all together now, om. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, meditating for you live. 08459 25000 is the number to call with your science technology questions. Questions for our guest, David Pritchard, about parasites and the kind of things that live inside us and what they can do for us. And, uh, and also we're going to be going to our kitchen science fairly shortly as well. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. Yeah, it's a brilliant way that you can listen to all the shows. If you've missed anything, get online and listen to our podcast because we naked scientists, we want to be everywhere with you. And we're also being in people's kitchens, doing our kitchen science. And uh, this week, Dave and Derek are in someone's kitchen doing a rather explosive experiment. And you must really not do this at home. Please don't do this at home. It involves blowing stuff up. Uh, Dave and Derek are good at doing this kind of thing. They've made it safe. And they're with Laura and Catherine in Meldris School who are going to 
to be finding out what they're doing. So, what are you up to there, Derek? Hello, welcome again to the Naked Scientist Laboratory, which is our headquarters. It's where we do a lot of our wacky experiments. And we've got one ready today as well. Of course, this is an experiment which we do not want people to try at home. It is going to be a cool experiment all the same, though. So, Dave is with me, as always. Dave, what have we got lined up? Well, this evening, Derek, we're going to be making some explosions using water. And also with us are two wonderful helpers who are going to be doing some of the stuff and also telling us what's happening. So would you care to introduce yourself, please? Hi, I'm Laura and I'm nine years old. Excellent. And, and yourself? Hi, I'm Catherine and I'm nine years old. Excellent. And uh, Laura, what do you like about science then? I like mixing things together to see what happens. All right then. And yourself, Catherine? I like experimenting because you can discover new things. OK, so in front of me is our apparatus, and this is a wonderfully homemade piece of kit because, of course, we like to be economical here, don't we, Dave? So, so basically we, we've, we've taken a load of empty lemonade bottles and some tubes and so on, and what we've got at the very bottom is, is a flask, and coming out of that is three tubes, and two of these tubes kind of go directly vertically up through kind of two measured columns, and then they, they go into another kind of empty lemonade bottle, and, and there's another lemonade bottle up there as well. It all looks wonderfully complex, and I must say, I, without Dave, I'd be lost as to what's going on here, but luckily he's going to be telling us. So, Dave, what's, what are we going to do with this? Well, first of all, we're going to have a look right down the bottom. So, Laura and Catherine, can you come down here? OK, so we're sat right at the bottom. So, at the bottom, we've got the top half of a lemonade bottle with a couple of chopped-off ferry liquid bottles. Can you see that? OK. Now, inside here, can you, what can you see inside the lemonade bottle? Wires going up and down. That's right. We've got two platinum wires, which one of my mates got from a jeweller in London. <laughs> Superb. OK, I won't say which. No favouritism here. <laughs> no favouritism here. OK, so we've got two platinum wires, and what I'm about to do is I'm going to switch a switch up here, and we're going to see what happens. We've got electricity through the water in the lemonade bottle. So, so let's just round up what we're looking at here. Uh, the flask at the bottom of this tall apparatus is full of water, and there are two tubes coming out of the top, and beneath each of those tubes is a platinum wire, so these wires are immersed in the water, and they're somewhat separated too. And, and we're about to start passing electricity between the two wires, which means electricity will pass through the water. Now, Dave, just quickly about platinum. Uh, what is it exactly? I mean, it's quite expensive, isn't it? Yeah, platinum is a, a precious metal. They use it for re wedding rings and things. But it also has the advantages. It, so it makes some chemical reactions happen a lot faster and a lot more easily. It's called a catalyst. And that's what we like, nice quick reactions. OK, so Dave, what are you going to do then? I'm going to turn on the power and put electricity through this water. OK, so what can you see down there in the tube, guys? Catherine, what can you see? It looks like there's some sort of bubbles going up the tubes. Yeah, there's lots of bubbles coming off each of the two wires. The bubbles are getting caught by the tops of the fairy liquid bottles and they're getting collected in two long tubes up here. OK, then, so these tubes that I described that go vertically up, there's lots of kind of little bubbles. Can you see the bubbles going all the way up? Yeah. OK, then. Um, so why is it bubbling? This whole process is called electrolysis, which means splitting water by electricity. Have you ever heard of any other names for water? Have you ever heard of water being called H2O? Yes, definitely. Well, here I have a model of a water molecule, which is the little tiny lumps which all, all water is made up of. What does the model look like? Looks like some head with some round ears. Yeah, what, what do you think, Catherine? Does it remind you of any particular cartoon character? It reminds me of Mickey Mouse. Yeah, very good. All right, then. So, water being Mickey Mouse, what's that about? Well, the water molecule is made up of one oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms. So it's a bit like the oxygen atom is Mickey Mouse's face and the two hydrogen atoms are his ears. Now, the oxygen bit of the water molecule is attracted to the positive terminal, the positive wire, 
and the hydrogen is attracted to the negative wire. And if they get really close to one of the wires, you actually rip the water molecule apart. The hydrogens go to one wire and the oxygen goes to the other. And the oxygen atoms f finds another oxygen atom and they glue together and form an oxygen molecule. And the hydrogen atoms glue together and form a hydrogen molecule. So what we've done is we've taken the, the faces of Mickey Mouse and then the faces have decided to stick together on their own without the ears. And then the ears have decided to stick together, so ears are hydrogen, faces are oxygen. Now, hydrogen is a gas. And have you ever heard of oxygen? Uh, it's what you breathe in. Yeah, it's a gas which you breathe in. So it forms these little bubbles and it comes up here. So what we've been doing is we've been using electrolysis to split water uh, and we've been channelling the two gases that we've got from the water into these two tubes that stretch upwards. So there's hydrogen in one and oxygen in the other. And, and now Dave, I gather, is going to mix these two gases back together in uh, another one of these reclaimed lemonade bottles higher up in the apparatus. Is that right? Yes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to release about 20 centimetres cubed of hydrogen... And because it's two hydrogens for every one oxygen, I'm going to release 10 centimetres cubed of oxygen. OK, and where are these going, Dave? They're going into another little chamber, are they? These are getting stored in a little mixing chamber up near the top. So just above those tubes, we've channelled in a bit of hydrogen and then half as much oxygen, and so the gas is sitting there merrily at the moment. Now, what I want you to do, Catherine, is take the trigger. OK, this is a rather abused kitchen gas lighter with two wires coming out the top up near into a little explosion chamber where, when you press that, you're going to get a spark. OK, and so this spark, where is that going to be? That's going to be in that mixing chamber, is it? It's, it's going to be above the mixing chamber in a special explosion chamber, and when we put the hydrogen and oxygen in there, the spark should give enough energy for the two to react together. So could you two stand back a bit, just to the end of the wire? OK, we're ready. I'm going to release the gas into the explosion chamber. When I tell you, press the button. Give them a countdown, is that all right? OK. Five, four... Three, two, one, go! Oh. What did you hear? <laughs> a loud bang. Fantastic. A very, very loud bang. Were you scared? I was. <laughs> so, so that, that made me jump a bit. Excellent, Dave. What happened? All that energy which we were putting into the hydrogen oxygen by pushing the electricity through the water was released in about a thousandth of a second as we caused an explosion of the hydrogen and the oxygen at the top and it burnt back to just normal water. So we've got water there now? Yeah. It was very hot for a few milliseconds, and it produced a really loud bang. So what we've really done, then, is we split some water using electrolysis, and then we put it back together using, what, a spark, I suppose? Yeah, just a spark, because it'll put itself back together again if it's got enough energy. I see, so it was just triggering that reaction, and then it just came back together. Fantastic. Guys, what did you think of that experiment? To Catherine, firstly. I think that was quite good, actually. OK, and uh, Laura, do you understand more about water now? A lot more, and... Uh think I'm going to stay away from one of those machines whenever I meet one. Very, very wise. Next week, Derek and Dave are leaving the region's kitchens for the region's schools. Yes, next week we're having a fantastic competition in which the counties battle it out in a live DNA extraction experiment. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work. Mm -hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. So we're going to go and have a quick chat to Mario, who's phoned in the Naked Scientist. Hi, Mario. Hello. Hi. What's your question for us? Hi, my question is, I've seen a lot of uh, um, children born with very black hair, but then eventually by at least before even they are a year old, they turn um, very fair uh, haired. And I've seen, on the other hand, um, 
children, in fact, photographs of uh, adults and uh, when they were children, and they had very blonde hair. And uh, as adults, they got very dark hair. And I was wondering why does uh, nature do that? Um, uh, I know a bit about genetic, and I would have thought uh, black hair usually dominant on, on uh, fair hair and so on. But I still don't understand why the change uh, from a baby from when they're born up to adults. Okay, so the the answer to this question all centres around a pigment called melanin, which is a pigment that um, gives us dark moles, it gives you dark skin and it gives you dark hair. It's a pigment called eumelanin. And there's also a slightly paler version called thiomelanin, which gives people sort of reddy, gingery hair. And everyone has genes in their DNA that um, will give them a, a different level of these two pigments. So people who have very white or very, very fair hair basically don't have much pigment at all. And people who have very dark hair have a, a lot of this pigment. Now also, as, um, as you get older your cells will change in the way that they use their genes. So this is sort of the program that's in their genes. So the, the same way that all our cells will age and uh, in that kind of way. If, if you have a child that's born with very dark hair and it becomes blonde, that would suggest that the gene that's making the melanin when they're a baby has been turned off in some kind of way. So then the hair that's growing is much lighter. And the same way round, if they're born with blonde hair, and a, a lot of um, fair-skinned babies are born with very blonde hair and it changes colour, and my sister was a lovely blonde when she was a baby, um, that's because their genes have started turning on this melanin pigment in their hair cells. So it's not something that's fixed, and even quite late in life you can, uh, you can go from being a, a, a blonder person to a darker person. And if you go in the sun a lot, that also bleaches out the melanin that's in your hair. So you can go b more blonde in the sun. Does that answer your question, Mario? Yes, yes it does. Cool. Do you want to have a go at our quiz? <laughs> OK. Come on, then. All right. Thank you very much. OK, you want to get the quiz? OK. The first question is, a lepidopterist studies leopards. Science fact or science fiction? Sorry, sorry, say it again. A lepidopterist studies leopards. Uh, is that true or false? True. No, it's false. Yeah, lepidopterists actually study butterflies because the Latin name for those creatures is Lepidoptera. OK, all right, yeah. All right, trick question. Next question. Um, Crayola crayons, the wax crayons, were invented in 1903. Is that true or false? Uh, true. Yep, Edward Binney and Harold Smith came up with the world's favourite colouring in tools in 1903. OK, you've got one out of three so far. And at last question, the leaf beetle can pull up to ten times its own body weight. Is that true or false? Say it again. I'm a bit deaf. Uh, the, the leaf beetle, its type of beetle, uh -huh. it can pull up to ten times its own body weight. Oh, yes. Is that true or false? Yeah, it's true. The leaf beetle's the strongman of the insect world and it can actually haul 43 times its own body weight. If humans had this strength, the average adult could pull around 6,500 pounds. That's, That's incredible. Good. So one out of three, not bad. Oh, well, cheers. Thanks for your call, Mario. And if anyone else out there wants to go at the quiz or has any questions for us or questions for Dr David Pritchard about um, bugs and uh, allergies, then get phoning in 08459... 25-2000. The Naked Scientists. Supported by the Wellcome Trust. 
Hi, you're listening to the Naked Scientists in the Eastern Counties, and we're here with Professor David Pritchard, who's going to tell us a little bit about his work that he's been doing. So I understand that for your research, you've infected yourself with parasites. Can you tell us about that? This is true. I, I'm one of ten people who infected themselves, ourselves, with, with worms. Why? We did it because we believe that worms given to people under a controlled regime can actually benefit patients suffering from allergy and autoimmunity. OK, so I'll, I'll just bring in Sarah here. Can you tell us a bit about what is an allergy and what sort of allergies we're talking about? Sure. Um, allergies, actually, a Greek word, allos ergos, which means altered reactivity. And people that have allergies um, have an increased reactivity of their immune system to foreign substances such as pollen and things. And that causes those annoying symptoms we all think about, like hay fever, where you get your runny nose and your itchy eyes and all snotty. And then asthma, you get wheezy and short of breath. And then there's other allergies like the hives or nettle rash that we get on our skins if you touch a dodgy plant or something. Um, it's all incredibly annoying. Um, and basically, people that have allergies um, produce an antibody called IgE, and that lines um, our nose and our respiratory tract. And when you breathe in an allergen like pollen, some people produce too much IgE, and it's very, very annoying because it then binds to um, histamine receptors on mast cells, and the mast cell then pops and out pops loads of histamine, which then is the, the substance that causes all the symptoms like the runny nose and the itchy eyes. Um, and so what we do to try and prevent that, people take antihistamines, which bind to the histamine receptors and stop the histamine from getting there and to try and prevent the nasty symptoms. So it's always best to take your antihistamine sort of before you think you might get an allergy to try and prevent it in advance. So it's basically our immune system going over the top. Mm. And so, David, are these kind of diseases that you're looking at like that or are they slightly different? Well, I, I can add to that by saying that the allergic response actually ev evolved in people to, to expel worms. Ah, so that's how it originally started. That's why that we have an allergic response. Ah. So the worms have developed strategies to counteract allergy. And it's, it's those strategies we're trying to harness to treat disease. So what sort of diseases are you looking at? At the moment, we're targeting rhinitis for the next pollen season. Brilliant. But we have colleagues in Australia who are targeting Crohn's disease because the, the idea is that the worm will switch off um, all aberrant or hyperactive immune responses, including so what Crohn's. what is Crohn's disease? Crohn's is a, an autoimmune disease that attacks the, the bowel, uh, right. causing inflammatory bowel diseases. OK. And, and so how do you think these worms are actually helping... The worms are obviously doing something to the immune system to, to say, stop reacting. And we're trying to harness that, that property. Um, the main thrust of the lab is actually to try to find new drugs from these organisms. But the clinicians in Nottingham have decided to go one step back and to use the live infection in treating rhinitis sufferers. So in January, we are actually embarking on a, a study where we'll be infecting um, cohorts of rhinitis patients with live worms, and then monitoring them through the hay fever season to see if the, the worms actually assist. So rhinitis, that is allergic, sniffy, knows, allergic sniffly hay yes, fever. Yeah. And uh, can people get on this trial? Can people volunteer to be on it? People have already been recruited, oh. and we do have a contact number if people wanted to embark on the trial, but there is a, a fairly rigorous selection procedure, so okay. they would have to contact us independently. 
David, tell us a little bit more about the worm itself, because, I mean, everybody's perception of, of, of worms are sort of these wriggly things. But just before we came on air, you showed me a, a, a photograph of one, and it's not at all as you'd expect. Well, these, these are quite small worms. They're microscopic to begin with. Um, we, we, we've, we've actually studied these worms in the tropics for over 20 years, and, and what we were astonished by was the fact that these worms will live inside you for five years or more, despite the fact that there is an immune response to them albeit not an allergic response. And they're transmitted to people through the soil. So microscopic worms transmitted to the soil through faecal matter um, will enter the skin, will then find blood vessels in a manner similar to the, the gadget you described earlier. These, these worms are very good at finding blood vessels. They then migrate through the lungs, are coughed up, swallowed, and end up in the small intestine. And they will stay there for five years. Whilst you've got the worms, you don't really know you have them until they reach the gut. And once they're in the gut, if you have too many, you certainly feel that you've got them. But during a safety study in Nottingham, we were able to establish the, the safe dose that we predicted would, would switch off the allergic response without causing aberrant symptoms. Now, you, you actually transported these worms through customs by, by infecting yourselves with them from, from Papua New Guinea. A colleague of mine did. Presumably when he got here, he got rid of them? No, he still has them. So he's, he's been carrying a fairly substantial worm burden now for five years. So do they reproduce as well? No. They, they mate as separate sexes in the small intestine. They produce eggs. The eggs pass out of the faecal matter and then develop into infective larvae in the soil, which then can detect human skin and burrow back through. And it starts all and over again. this is how the cycle's perpetuated. How many worms do you have to give a patient? We, we've estimated from field studies where worm infection has been linked to a reduction in respiratory wheeze to dust mites that you can give 10 worms to alleviate asthma. And 10 worms certainly do not cause any symptoms in, in recipients. We know this from our safety study. If you go up to 25, 50, definitely with 100, you, you, you feel sick. You have a, an epigastric pain that tells you something unusual is going on in your gut. Saying that, it's not as bad as having gastric flu, for example. It's just the uneasy feeling that you've got something inside you that perhaps shouldn't be there. However, if you go back to 10 worms, then you, you, you've got no idea that you're carrying this burden and the beneficial effects could be... Um, imparted to those with 10 worms. So you give your study patients the 10 worms, 10 worms. and those worms can't multiply. You're stuck they with can't. 10. And the other, the other thing to say is that you can actually expel the worms if they do cause problems in the gut, simply by giving the same sorts of worm tablets you give to your pet, your dog. So you, you, can, you, can, you can get wormed, absolutely. Oh my After goodness. the worms have gone... Mm -hmm. um, do you still have the benefits, or do the worms have to be there to get a, the benefits? It's a good question. You see, in the tropics, um, people are acquiring worm infections from a very young age. Um, children, once they start walking away from their, how, their houses in tropical areas, they will walk on contaminated soil and will pick up worms. And these worms accumulate throughout life. Because they're suppressing the immune system, you tend to gather an increasing worm burden with age. And the average worm burden in the village in Papua New Guinea, for example, is 25. And it's this sort of level we think is beneficial. Now, whether we can mimic that in a hospital in Nottingham is difficult to say, because we'll be giving 10 worms in one dose after the event, 
after the person has already developed allergy or after the person has already developed Crohn's. So the trial may not work at this time. We may have to go back to what are called trickle infections where we give small numbers over an increased length of time to see the benefit. It's just making me squirm thinking about it. <laughs> I quite like the idea because I suffer with hay fever, so it sounds quite good to me. So you don't <laughs> mind being infected? It might be quite good if I could get rid of my horrible symptoms. But I have hay fever and allergies, so I don't want worms. <laughs> well, I think we'll sign both of these up, uh, David. What about bringing things like this into the country? Would you need a permit, that sort of thing? I think if you bring them in inside you, then no. Uh, if you were carrying them in tubes, then I, I guess you should declare them. So it was the best way to bring them in, really? I guess so. We also had some in a tube that, that were declared. But it's an interesting story. The study in, in Australia is being conducted using worms taken from Nottingham. And these worms actually originated from New Guinea, which, as you know, is just north of Australia. So these are, <laughs> so are well-travelled well well worms, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. Can I just ask, if, one of, I mean, it's difficult to know how allergies develop and we think it's possibly a combination of genes and mm -hmm. environment. And then maybe if we don't get these worm infestations in the UK anymore, do you think that's playing a role? The, there is a, a, a hypothesis out there called the hygiene hypothesis that, which, which says that the reason we're so allergic these days is because we live in a too clean environment with thick carpets, with dust mites in abundance. And by having worms, we're reintroducing some uh, dirt back into the system. And it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a nice idea. I'm not sure how true it is. And we're approaching it from a different angle. Allergic responses definitely evolved to fight worms. So by using them and their products, we can turn the system back on itself and switch off allergy. That's absolutely amazing. So if you've got questions for Professor Pritchard, then get phoning in now. Do you have allergies? Would you take worms? I wouldn't. Sarah would. I mean, who, whose side are you on with this? Um, have you ever had worms? Did you notice your allergies getting better? And, uh, and generally, what, what do you think about using parasites in this way? We'd love to hear your stories. We'd love to hear your questions. 08459 Mandy. Well, I think it's about time we found out what uh, Dr Chris has been up to this week. And next week, is Healthcare Science Week and it kicks off right across the UK. Now this initiative uh, will see school pupils measuring their fitness profiles and aims to highlight the wealth of job opportunities for budding scientists in the healthcare sector. The first school in the country to take part in this was Westbourne High School in Ipswich and Chris is down there to find out what it's all about. Well I've gone back to school because I'm here at Westbourne High School in Ipswich which is officially the first school in the whole of the UK to be taking part in healthcare Science Week. Now this kicks off around the rest of the country from tomorrow and it will eventually see about 2,000 young people measuring their fitness levels with the help of a healthcare scientist from their local hospital. But the aim isn't just about finding out how fit people are. It's all about telling young people about the huge range of jobs for budding scientists that are available in the healthcare system throughout the country. One of the people who's helping to organise the event is Bev Bailey, who's here with me now. Bev, what's Healthcare Science Week all about what it, and what's it trying to achieve? There's two reasons for this. One is that there are around 50,000 scientists working within the, the health service who very often remain unrecognised for the enormous contribution that they make towards public health uh, within our hospitals and, and communities. And the second reason is to try and get more young people interested in, in science as a potential career um, long-term career. There's over 50 different careers within healthcare science itself and there are options for anybody who's interested in science, technology, engineering, um, IT even. 
And it's all to do with research, development, there's scientists who work in laboratories, scientists who work in the community. So there's an enormous scope for any, any child with, with the remotest interest in science for a very good long-term career. Thanks, Bev. Well, one of the scientists who's helping out here today at Westbourne High School is Andy Pointer from Ipswich Hospital. Andy, what do you do? I'm Head of Radiotherapy Physics at Ipswich Hospital, so my job is to provide uh, scientific support and expertise to the oncologists that work in the department at Ipswich Hospital treating cancer patients. I'm delighted to have been asked to take part in this event because I think there's a real need to raise the profile file of healthcare scientists because people are just not aware of how important a role they play in hospitals today. So what are you going to be doing here today with the kids at Westbourne High? Okay, we're going to be measuring uh, three basic indices which will give us a snapshot of uh, the student's health. The first one we're going to be measuring is body mass index which is basically the uh, student's height um, and weight and um, we take the weight and divide by the square of the height and that gives us an index of effectively how uh, over or underweight the student is. We're also going to be measuring their peak expiratory flow which gives us a good indication of uh, the health of their lungs and how well they can get air out of their lungs and we're also going to be measuring their rest and racing pulse and recovery rates which means that we get uh, the student to uh, run on the spot for a few minutes and see how quickly their pulse goes up and then we'll be measuring um, one minute intervals thereafter to see how quickly their pulse returns to the rest level. Well, one of the people who's volunteered to have a go at this is Kim. What have we been up to? We took our pulse rate and then we did an exercise for a minute and took a pulse rate again and then a few minutes after that we did it again to see how fast we can get back to our normal pulse rate. So how does this actually help us to work out whether people are fit or not? What we're looking for here is um, in a fit person that their pulse rate will go up very, very quickly with exercise to um, provide the blood that they need for their muscles. And as soon as they stop exercise, that their pulse rate will drop back down to their resting level very quickly. All of those are signs of, of excellent uh, cardiovascular health. So if we look here at uh, Kim's results, she started off with a rest beats of 70. After one minute's uh, jogging on the spot, she went up to 150. She then stopped. Two minutes after that, she was back down to 90. Four minutes after that, 80. And five minutes after that, back to rest pulse of 70, which is excellent. Would you describe yourself as in excellent fitness, Kim? I won't say that, but I try. <laughs> Do you think you take a lot of exercise? Yeah, I walk every day to school and back. And I go swimming every weekend. Do you think you're representative of most people your age in terms of the amount of exercise they take, or do you think you're a bit fitter than most? I try to be a bit fitter than most. I do more exercise than most of my friends. Do they just walk to school and I didn't do much after that? Do you think exercise is important? Because obviously people are telling you all the time it is, but do you actually really believe it, it does make a difference to your health? Yeah, I think so, because it's keeping a healthy body and making sure you are fit so you can do everyday things without getting out of breath or exhausted. So taking part in something like this, do you think this helps people to understand a bit more about how to stay fit and healthy? Yeah, I think so. It gets over a bit more easily and making it more fun make people do it even more. So Bev, once everyone around the country has collected all this data about their fitness levels, what will you do with the information? Um, in, in each of the schools, as the students are doing their measurements, they can enter their data directly onto a website um, that we've set up especially for Healthcare Science Week. And as soon as they've entered their measurements, it will generate an individual chart for that student as well as an indication of where that child's measurements fit within the rest of their class group. And as soon as they've organised those charts to, to automatically appear, 
those measurements are anonymously downloaded onto the nationwide database. So this is going to be really useful, essentially, to find out how fit Britain's schoolchildren are. We're very much hoping so. Um, it is, it's the three main indicators of health, and to the best of our knowledge, there hasn't been anything like, um, like this done before, and this will be about 2,000 individual measurements from children aged 14 to 16 initially, and then as soon as Healthcare Science Week is over, the website opens up to as many schools um, as want to do it. So we hope the website information will continue to grow and we will end up with a, with a very big database of, of baseline data. Right, well, I'm off to measure my peak expiratory flow now to see if my lungs are working properly. So from all of us here at the launch of Healthcare Science Week from Westbourne High School, that's Bev, Andy and Kim, thank you very much, and back to the studio. And Dr Chris will be donning his longer trousers next week. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. And we're going to have a quick chat to Martin from Wisbeach. All right there, Martin. Hello. Hello, hi. What's your question for the Naked Scientist um, today? Well, I've fitted a multi-fuel burner in the living room mm -hmm. to know where to fit the carbon monoxide detector. Should I fit it high or low? That's a really important question because carbon monoxide is a, a gas that's produced when... Um, when Carbon fuels burn, but they don't burn properly, and it's also very poisonous and can kill people while they sleep. So it's a good idea that you're thinking about your carbon monoxide detector. Now, what you need to know is whether carbon monoxide is lighter or heavier than the rest of the stuff in the air, which is mostly oxygen and nitrogen. And the answer is carbon monoxide is lighter. So what you need to do is put your carbon monoxide detector either on a wall or on the ceiling, but high up on the wall, if you put it there, um, about 6 to 12 inches away from the corners, so you get the best detection. Does that answer your question? Lovely. Thank you. Do you want to have a go at our quiz? Yes. Excellent. Right, first question. The inventor of air conditioning was called Charles Cooler. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fiction. Well done, that's great. Um, the honour of inventing air conditioning goes to a chap called W.H. Carrier. <laughs> Not cool, cooler at all. Um, next question. Alexander Fleming is famous for inventing the telephone. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fiction. Yep, that's right. Um, Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, which is the medicine that saved lots of lives from bacterial infections. Um, and Alexander Graham Bell was the chap who invented the telephone. So you're on form tonight with the trick questions. And finally, the most dangerous insect in the world is the mosquito. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fiction. No, because they transmit malaria, mosquitoes kill millions of people every year, making them a real danger to humans. Well, so you got two out of three there, Martin, so that puts you in the lead at the moment. You're doing pretty well. Thanks for calling. Bye-bye. All right, cheers. So if you've got any questions for us, or for Professor David Pritchard about parasites and allergies, then get phoning in yourself. That's 08459 25 If you can get two out of three or three out of three, then you can win the Encyclopaedia Britannica on DVD. So um, next up, we're going to go and have a chat to Professor Elizabeth Bernays, who's currently in Arizona. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Hi. Um, so we're going to talk a bit about your research, which isn't on human parasites, but on caterpillar, uh, caterpillar parasites. Right. So what have you been looking at? Uh, well, I've been looking at caterpillars in, that live in southern Arizona, and uh, they get parasites from 
flies that lay their eggs on the outside of the caterpillar, and then the parasites, the eggs uh, hatch, and the little maggots dig in and eat out the whole caterpillar. Ooh, that sounds really horrible. I mean, what do caterpillars do about this? Well, there's um, one thing that I've been looking at that they do is to eat certain plants that have a chemical that protects them a bit from the parasites. And if they eat enough of this chemical, it will kill some of those maggots and um, allow the caterpillar to continue living. So how, how do the caterpillars know which plants to eat? Well, that's a good question, and that's one of the things I've been studying because they have a special taste bud that's sensitive to these chemicals in the plants. And the chemicals are called pyrolizidine alkaloids. Can you say that again? I'm just going to call them PAs. <laughs> They're toxic and they, they taste very bitter to humans. But these caterpillars love them. And it's a good adaptation because when they come across a plant with these chemicals, it, it means they like to eat that plant and they eat a lot of it. But one of the problems is that um, they feed on a lot of different plants and what happens when they've got a parasite in them is the, the, the taste for this chemical gets stronger and stronger. And so the little taste bud goes excitedly wild when it meets a plant with this chemical and that makes sure that they eat a lot of that chemical. So they, they acquire a taste for it when they need it? Well, they have a taste for it but it gets much more sensitive when they need it. How did you find this out? How did you test for this? Well, I've been working on the taste buds of these caterpillars for some time because, you know, they have a taste bud that's sensitive to sugar and a taste bud that's sensitive to bitter compounds, that kind of thing. And then I found they had a taste bud sensitive to these PAs that are so good for them. And quite by chance I found that it, the sensitivity varied a lot. And uh, we did some experiments and found that if they get the parasites, then that's when they get more sensitive. Then they get the craving. They get the craving, and we know that if we feed them like a synthetic diet with or without the PAs, the, one, the ones that get PAs survive much better. So we know the PAs are good for them, and uh, now we know that the taste buds get more sensitive to the PAs when they need them. So do you think anything like this happens in other animals? Well, nothing... We have not been able to find it in any other stories about animal taste, so we don't really know how common it is. There's no, there's no suggestion of it in humans. Um, it could be that we just haven't looked for the right things, but I think that insects are a little bit different, maybe, that their taste buds vary more according to what they need. So we know, for example, if they're, if they're short of sugar or short of carbohydrates, then the sugar cell gets more sensitive too. Ah, so they seek that out. Elizabeth, does it make any difference what animals then um, eat the caterpillars? Is, is well, those, are those substances good for the animals that eat the caterpillars? Yes, well, the, these chemicals, that, the, the caterpillars that feed on them have special mechanisms um, to stop them being poisonous. But the chemicals do protect them from parasites and predators, so... The thing is, these are tiger caterpillars and they eat a lot of toxic plants, so all kinds of chemicals get accumulated in their bodies and that protects them from birds and lizards and praying mantises, things like that. This particular chemical, the PAs I was talking about, we know um, that the parasites can have an effect uh, soon after they're 
maggots get into the body. That's absolutely fascinating. I, lo- I love to think about caterpillars going, mm, I feel a bit peckish, <laughs> searching out. I fancy some PAs today. I'd like a bit more of that bit of stuff. Yeah. Oh, that's really great, Elizabeth. Thanks for telling us all about your research. Well, it's uh, one other interesting detail that um, the things that normally taste bitter to them, um, they don't mind them at all when they've got the parasite. And that makes them eat other plants with other toxins. And that also helps to kill some of the parasites. So it's all good. They just get the mad hunger. The mad hunger, yes. That would be good if you could engineer a caterpillar that wouldn't eat your cabbages, wouldn't it? (laughs) That would be great. Thanks for chatting to us. That's Professor Elizabeth Bernays at the University, falling over my words, of Arizona. So um, we're here in the studio, Naked Scientists, talking about parasites, all the things that are in you, on you, around us, that uh, we consider to be bugs. And Professor David Pritchard considers them to be useful. So um, let's uh, hear your calls for, for us or for Professor Pritchard, and also you can get in the quiz. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists, uh, taking your calls now, 08459 25 2000. Uh, Dr. Kat, Dr. Sarah, and uh, we also have uh, Professor David with us this evening, uh, talking all things Wrigley, and uh, we've got one or two calls coming through now. So we're going to Malcolm now uh, in Essex. Malcolm, what's your question? Um, if people have tapeworms get really skinny, why don't they give it to really fat people to lose weight and take them out? Um, David, what do you think about this? Tapeworms for fat people. Well, I, I'm not sure it's true that people with worms are thinner than anybody else. Um, in fact, the guy that brought the worms back from New Guinea is one of the fattest people in the lab, and he still is, despite the fact he's carrying 300 worms. <laughs> um, the, the, the other interesting thing about, about the worms relating to the previous call from the States is that they give you an insatiable appetite. So when you have these hookworms, you just can't stop eating. Now, whether you you put on less weight despite eating more, I'm not too sure. I'm not sure whether there is any real evidence that people with tapeworms are actually actually thinner than those without. Sarah, have you got something there? I have. I I found something in the newspaper yesterday. It's about a hormone that might cut obesity um, because it suppresses appetite. Um, And it's a hormone called obestatin. um, And they gave it to lab animals and it made them eat half their normal intake and cut their body weight by 20% in just eight days. And that was um, revealed in science by Stanford University team. Um, So that might be quite cool. Maybe yeah, another treatment for my larger people that might like to lose a bit of weight. Maybe not eating cake like we've just got in the studio What do you here? think about that, Malcolm? <laughs> that sounds a good idea. Yes, that's a very good idea, yeah. Do you want to have a go at the quiz? OK, then. OK. First up, a dragonfly's eye has 30,000 lenses. Is that science fact or science fiction? Science fact. Well done. Insects such as dragonflies have things called compound eyes, which are made up of thousands of tiny lenses. Brilliant. Doing well. Um, ants. These are all insect questions, I think. Ants make up 20% of the total weight of all the animals on the planet. Is that science fact, uh, f- fact or science fiction? <laughs> fact. 
No, ants are thought to make up 10% of the mass of all the animals on the Earth. Well, that's still pretty impressive. I think, yeah, 10%, that'll do me. And finally, um, the Death Watch beetle makes its characteristic ticking sound by tapping its legs against wooden beams. Is that science fact or science fiction? Legs or head, did you say? Legs. Fiction. Yep, that's absolutely right. Death Watch beetles bang their heads against wood to make a tapping noise and it helps them attract a mate. Yeah, they're like, weird, do you fancy this? Try that when we're yeah. next down the bar. Yeah, down the bar, <laughs> banging their heads on the table to try and attract a mate. Um, well done. You've got two out of three. That puts you joint equal in the hat. So um, stay tuned to find out if you've won the Encyclopedia Britannica. Thank you. Thanks for your call, Malcolm. Cheerio. So um, we've had a few calls in already. And um, one of them has come in and said, uh, why do people fart? This is Sally and Luton. He wants to know, why do people fart and why would someone fart continuously? <laughs> Sarah, you are our <laughs> resident fart expert, self-appointed. Yeah, well, we have a couple of reasons why we have gas in our guts. Um, some of it's just air that we swallow that contains the nitrogen and carbon dioxide and the oxygen, so that comes out. And some of it's because undigested food and a sugar called lactose in the undigested food passes through into our large bowel. And the bacteria then think, oh, yummy, dinner's arrived. And so they start eating the sugar and the undigested food. And they then produce quite smelly gases. Um, and particularly if the food's got a lot of sulfur in it, they produce gases like hydrogen sulfide and this hydrogen. Is, what's sulfur? That's and things methane. like sprouts, isn't it? <laughs> sprouts and cabbage have got lots of sulfur. Cauliflower in. and eggs and meat have quite a lot of sulphur Ooh. in um, and beans are particularly fartogenic not particularly for smelly farts but they make you produce a lot of gas because um, they've got lots of sugars that human beings can't digest in them but the bacteria mm. love them mm. so if you want non-smelly but lots of farts eat beans farts. if you want the smelliest farts you've got to eat your cauliflower <laughs> and your meat and your eggs does it have a general <laughs> effect on health I mean if, if we do or we don't does it depend on how healthy we are or not healthy well most humans produce about half a litre of fart gas a day um, and a cow produces even more so thank god I don't live in a cow shed <laughs> David but it's, it's good to pass your wind I think David have you farted or do you want to say something no, I, I don't think I have the, the, the thing I wanted to add was that when you get worm infections one of the side effects is an increase in flatulence which is a posh way of putting it Ooh. and our medical colleagues are about to publish this research and actually have a graph of increased flatulence which is a first for for many publications. Because well, um, I, I saw a paper once where someone had actually um, been looking at the components of, of flatulence, to give it its posh name, and had designed some charcoal pants that helped to reduce mm. flatulent emissions. Oh, <laughs> and I think on, the, on this show about a year ago, I talked about someone who was measuring the com yeah. compounds in fart gas to see what people were infected with. It's, it's very common in the pet food industry. <laughs> they, they look for pet foods that don't cause flatulence. Yeah, there. my old dog used yes, to. Yes, our dog oh, is a bit smelly at times. I think we can, think we can definitely move on now because uh, we, have a, we have a sensible question from Peter in Suffolk. A uh, question for you, David. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter would like to know, he's, he's not with us this evening, he doesn't want to come on, but he wants to put a question, mm. uh, would like to know about the use of maggots in healthcare and experiments and things. I'm glad you asked that question, Peter, because my lab is actually also looking at the effects of maggots in wounds, and we've identified a number of interesting enzymes that maggots use to digest dead and decaying tissue and to kill bacteria. And the same enzymes promote um, tissue regeneration. So, in fact, maggots are very good tissue engineers and, and heal wounds through 
through their secretions. So what sort of things are in these secretions? Have you started looking at them? Um, maggots produce proteases. These are enzymes that digest tissue. So they're actually feeding on the, the wound, but it just so happens that these same enzymes promote tissue migration and and grow, and um, proliferation. So they have a dual effect. Will they only eat dead tissue? They 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 only eat dead tissue because that tissue is already partially digested, uh-huh. and they're only in the wound for three days because they pupate and would then fly off if allowed to. Ooh. So I'm not sure whether they would then go on to to eat live tissue. Saying that the species of worm which is chosen, the green bottle, tends not to burrow, which is why it's chosen. <laughs> so this is why forensic scientists can say how long a person has been dead as to whether the maggots are present or not. And, and the type and the species. Yeah. Yeah. This is killing me. I really hate maggots and things it's like very that. Very good for cleaning up the wound and so, promoting healing. Have you used maggot therapy yeah, as a doctor? Yeah, a couple of times in in our surgical ward in London, when we had problems with wounds that just wouldn't heal, we got maggots in from Wales. Do, you, and, how um, do they, they come really like in a, in a bag or what? Uh, that I don't know because I only saw them once they were actually on the wound. So maybe. Well, the latest to... development is to put the maggots into a nylon tea bag. And put so, that on. Put that so on the they're wound. not. There's a, there's, there's a bit of a, a discussion going on as to whether you should use what are called free-range maggots or <laughs> maggots in, in mesh. Um, I should add as well that the, these maggots haven't been through a, a controlled trial, which is what we're doing with the, the parasites at the moment, just to find out for certain whether they do do what they're supposed to do. But anecdotally, um, vascular surgeons will tell you that they're very effective at, at healing wounds that would no, not, not normally heal through conventional treatment. Because people are using leeches now as well and all sorts well, of le- things. Leeches have they never gone out of fashion, really. They, mm. They're used to Always take the blood out of, um, for example, if somebody loses a finger, the finger's sewn back onto the body. It has no vascular supply to take the blood away, but has a vascular supply to take it in. So the, the finger would become engorged with blood, so they put a, uh, mm. they put a leech at the end of the, the finger to, to take out that blood, and it works, so... Wow. Yeah. It's biotherapy. It's it's very popular. We're going to John in West Mersey now, who's got a question for David. Hello, John. Hello, there. Hello. You're through to David. Hello, hello David. Hello, John. Um, but, but actually, what I want to know is, has anyone, anyone been seriously ill by taking these worms? You know, you, you were saying that they take 10. Yeah, yeah. And it's quite, you know, safe. But has there been anyone who, in your trials that has been really seriously ill by taking them? The, the, the trial we conducted to date was a safety trial where we infected ourselves with uh, graded doses of, of worms and we went from 10 through 25, 50, up to 100. If you give somebody 100 worms, mm. they do not feel well. Mm. And in that case, we had to take the worms out of the system as quickly as possible. On, on the basis of the safety trial, we've determined you can use 10 safely without symptoms. Right. The... The parallel with the tropical world is that you would never, ever get 100 worms in one day. No. You'd accumulate them gradually through life. So what we're doing is wholly artificial. So you're right to ask that question. We have to be very careful that we don't give too many on one day mm. because they burrow through the skin, they actually go through your lungs, oh. and you then they migrate up your trachea, you swallow them into your gut, and they suck blood. So you're right, you have to be very careful that you don't give too many, mm. otherwise you will make somebody ill. So 10 is the chosen dose, and 10 
is deemed in our hands to be safe. Okay. How many days does it take for the worms to make you feel ill? Well, first of all, when they go through, through your skin, they itch. Uh, I should add that these worms infect percutaneously through the skin, so applying them is simply put them on a sticking plaster. So they itch. They cause extreme itching for a couple of days. And if you take periton, an antihistamine, um, does that we, work? We think histamine helps the worm to get through the system. So we're avoiding antihistamine treatments in the trial. Okay. But when they're, once, once they're in your system, through the skin, you don't really feel much. I had 50, and it wasn't until they reached my small intestine that I felt different, which is about four weeks later. Oh. And then you, you know they are there because you get this dull ache under the rib cage. So 50 is too many. 100 is definitely too many. 25 was borderline, 10 was deemed to be safe. So, John, dear, would you think of uh, taking worms? Oh, he's gone. Um, anyway, we've got a really quick question on the line from Christine in Braintree. Is she there? Hello, Christine. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask, uh, when I see young children travelling on planes and they're not, un uh, they're not affected by sickness, and there I am with my head in a bag... Um, nearly all the way through a journey. Um, I'm just wondering why I get it so badly and other people seem to, um, you know, don't feel it at all. And is there anything that I can do besides taking tablets? What, what tablets have you tried, Christine? Um, oh, I can't think of the name of that. Common it's things Stugeron. like Stugeron or Stematil, they're the common ones which, which tend to work. Yeah, um, and if those haven't worked, the, the ones you buy in the chemist, you can always go to your doctor to ask for more. Um, I think people often tend to find that their balance centre in their inner ear seems to be um, more of a problem as they age. So as a child, you can often sort of spin round and round and round and then feel not too bad and you get better quite quickly. But as you get older, you seem to become more sensitive mm. um, to, to that problem. I see. Right. And I just wanted to pop go into your quiz as well, please. Right. This is going to have to be absolutely super, super fast. Okay. Right. Potassium gives a yellow colour in fireworks. Yes or no? No. Yep, you're quite right. It's well done. It's actually the sodium which gives fireworks a yellow colour. Uh, next question. Iron is the commonest element on Earth. Yes or no? No. Well done. Oh, it's actually aluminium that's the commonest element. And finally, diamonds are made from silicone. Yes or no? No. You're absolutely right. Well done. Diamonds are made from carbon, and both of those uh, elements, silicone and carbon, are in group four of the periodic table. Well, you've actually just shot into the lead there, Christine, and have snatched the prize from under the feet of everyone else by Fantastic. getting three out of three. So you win a copy of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, wonderful. Well, well done. And now we're going to hear about what's coming up on next week's show. We've got Darren Graffham from the Sanger Centre, and uh, we've got Mike Majerus, and they're going to be talking about genes, genetics, genomes, these kind of things... Um, what's in our DNA? What's the code? How do we understand that? And also, we've got a radio first, because we have six schools across the region taking part in a live DNA extraction experiment. Live, on air, we're going to be um, finding out if people can race to the DNA. So uh, you should tune in next week to see if the school representing your county is going to turn out to be a winner. And it would be really great to see you listening to us on The Naked Scientists next week. And thanks to Mandy, and thanks to Sarah, thanks to our guest David, and thanks to you for listening. Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.